everyone, and welcome to Then Again with the Northeast Georgia History Center. So glad you could join us for this very interesting topic. We're going to be looking at something a little more local here to Georgia and, and to specifically to Atlanta in the earlier days of popular entertainment. Atlanta is a well-known concert venue. It, it's it's had a lot of artists, TV shows, movies are filmed there now. But, but before that big boom, Atlanta was still a very popular place to go see some public entertainment uh, in the days even really before electronics and recordings. And we have with us today, Professor Goodson from West Georgia College. Thank you for joining us, sir. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. If you would, tell us just a little bit about yourself uh, and about your the topic we'll be talking about today, how you got interested in that and, and how you came to write a book on it. Well, I got my master's and PhD in history at Emory University, and I took a class there on social history and read an article by well-known historian, he's late historian now, but named Lawrence Levine, talking about popular culture in the early 19th century and tracing it into the 20th century. And he made some observations about what entertainment was like then and the like that I thought I would test out in Atlanta for a graduate paper. So I started looking at public entertainment in Atlanta to see how it compared with what I'd read other historians say. And because not many historians have focused on commercial entertainment in the South. And that ended up being my dissertation then published as a book, Highbrows, Hillbillies and Hellfire, Public Entertainment in Atlanta, 1880 to 1930, was published 20 years ago this year in 2002. So I do what the title says. I look at the history of public entertainment in Atlanta during that 50 year period. And I look at all sorts of different types of entertainment from what was called a legitimate stage to vaudeville and burlesque and movies. The Metropolitan Opera Company of New York began to come to Atlanta annually in 1910. I look at African-American entertainment. And then finally, in the last chapter, I look at Atlanta as an early recording center for blues and what was originally called hillbilly music. So kind of runs the gamut of types of entertainment that were popular during this period. Let me ask you why the answer may be fairly simple, but I want to ask it anyway. What made you choose that time period that you focused on 1880 to 1930? Well, it's, it begins the New South era when Henry W. Grady, the managing editor of the Atlanta Constitution and others around the South were calling for a New South modeled more on the example of the North. You know, we want more industrialization. We want to diversify agriculture, that kind of thing. And Atlanta becomes, by the 1880s, it's the center of this New South movement. It's also economically central to the Southeast. It grows incredibly over the time period that I'm talking about. I think In 1870, the population was about 20,000. 50 years later in 1920, it's over 200,000. Number of railroads converge here and entertainment always comes through here when it's touring the Southeast. And it's got a very varied population from African-Americans who are pouring into the city and white farmers who are pouring into the city during the agricultural collapse of the late 19th century, all the way up to businessmen drawn not only from the South, but from the North as well, portrays itself as a new and different kind of city. And it's central to Southern history at this time. So, and I was doing my research in Atlanta at Emory University. So for a variety of reasons, <laughs> it, it seemed like a good city to do. The resources were right there for me to do it in Atlanta. That does play a role, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, I don't want to let too many people in on the secrets of real historians. But yeah, the, <laughs> the closer the archives and having to be in a language that you're very familiar with can sometimes drive that research exactly where it 
needs to go. <laughs> oh, very much so. Yes. <laughs> what kind of what kind of public entertainment are we talking about? The list that you already gave it's a it's a very wide and varied body of of entertainment. And I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that they're not everyone is going to go to all those different sorts of entertainment. It's it's very focused on particular demographics, right? Yeah, and that's the interesting thing about it. Or one of the interesting things about it to me was that Atlanta was at a crossroads during this period. And there were some people who wanted to hold back the modern world and remain a more provincial, strongly Protestant, evangelical city, kind of reject modernism. There were other people who wanted to plunge ahead and become as cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitanism was a big word right there. We want to be a, back then, we want to be a cosmopolitan city. And so there's conflict within the city as to which direction it'll go in. And often these conflicts are fought out in the arena of entertainment about who's doing what on stage and what it says about the South or types of performers who were involved or people's physical appearances. There's all sorts of things that come into conflict in the area of entertainment that reflect this larger conflict, I think, over where Atlanta is going. And so depending on which entertainment you look at, yeah, you get a different demographic for some compared to others. And that's part of the overall discussion and controversy is, is this entertainment just for low-class people? Is this entertainment just for the educated, cultured elite? So there's class, racial, gender issues and conflicts around entertainment. So on the one hand, I chose it because it's a fun, colorful, human topic. I really love the history of commercial entertainment. But on the other hand, beneath that fun surface, there's some really serious issues at play that I wanted to explore. Well, how did, you know, as you said, Atlanta is a very, it's a diverse city in this time period. So, so what sort of, what sort of commercial entertainment that you're, that you're talking about was aimed at, at some of those respective different demographics? Well, the thing I start with is theater. Theater from late 19th century on up to 1910 or so is the main entertainment form, main commercial entertainment form. Trains come through bringing troops of actors that start out in New York and they stay two or three days and put on stage uh, plays in Atlanta's main theater or theaters as time goes on. And that's the kind of entertainment that draws the most people. And you get a more diverse audience in the theater. And then you take something like burlesque, which starts under a real dark cloud of suspicion <laughs> at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. And you get a more, you don't get to read interviews with people who go to burlesque theaters. Those aren't <laughs> the types of people that Atlanta newspapers interview. But from the outside perspective of the people who are critical of those theaters, you have working class people going or other people who are lacking morals in one way. So some entertainment is portrayed as being almost sacred, like classical music when it comes through. And it's supposed to be really accessible only to the highest educated elite. Some education uh, entertainment is scorned, like burlesque, like black dance halls and that sort of thing. Because according to the prism that I'm seeing this through, which is the writing in the local newspapers, those are the least desirable people. And there's dangers in catering to them through unsavory entertainment and that sort of thing. So there's entertainments that draw a broad array of people, and then there's some that draw fewer. And then when you get to the 1920s and you're talking about recording, you know, you're talking about working class, mostly white and black artists who are recording in makeshift studios in Atlanta. And those are being sent up to New York, turned into records and put on the market. 
And the elite in Atlanta is not paying much attention to that. They barely know what's going on. I argue in the book that, you know, ultimately that's going to be the most important entertainment that Atlanta produces during this period because Southern music is going to have such an earth-shaking influence on the rest of the country and the rest of the world, ultimately. So, well, that no, that 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 brings up a, a really interesting point. So, if you know, especially with the with the diversity of of recording studios, let me let me ask this question first: Are the recording studios generally segregated? Th- these record uh, black artists, these record white artists, and that's it. No, it, it's not segregated at that stage. Several years ago, I was interviewed on the radio several times because there was a big controversy in Atlanta. Well, big to people who were interested over a building, <laughs> building on Nassau Street, where in 1923, Fiddlin' John Carson made the first ever hit country recording, country recording that really sold. And that building in 2000, I think it was 2019, was going to be torn down for a Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville restaurant and hotel. And there was a man in Atlanta who crusaded to try to save the building because of its historical importance to Atlanta's cultural history, the country's cultural history, but ultimately it was torn down and Jimmy Buffett prevailed. But uh, <laughs> at these makeshift recording sessions, that, that was a vacant building or they get a hotel room and they put blankets around the walls to muffle outside sounds and for the acoustics and blacks and whites would record in the same studio, but the records would be released under different series. There'd be what were called race records, and those were by African-Americans and were aimed at the black market. And then there'd be, they had a variety of names until Hillbilly was settled on, old time, mountain music, whatever. That was a separate series of recordings that would be sold to white audiences. So the performers weren't so much segregated as the final product was segregated. Right. But folks, in my experience, folks tend not to think of of those early days of Atlanta being a, a center for music recording. So, I mean, if is I mean, is, is that accurate or was it like the place that you went to record these albums? For a while, it was the place you went. I mean, nobody was doing albums. They were 78 RPM oh, singles. But right. this is where you went to record this type of music during the 1920s. Quote one historian in the book that says most of the real country music of the 1920s was recorded in Atlanta. Now, Nashville is ultimately going to take over as the capital of country music in the country. But for a brief period during the 1920s, blues and country music were Atlanta was the main source to record those types of music. Oh, well, oh my gosh. Why, why didn't we hang on to that title then? How did Nashville end up scooping us? Well, part of it is something that I mentioned earlier, I think, that the people who ran Atlanta, the people who promoted Atlanta, the people who wrote the newspapers, people who were always trying to make Atlanta a cultural center of the South and the country, this type of music was below their notice. So there weren't real people, there weren't necessarily people, powerful or well-funded people in Atlanta who were promoting this type of music. Also, the Great Depression just virtually wipes out the recording industry. And so for a long time, there's not that much being done. And Atlanta, I mean, Nashville just manages to seize the moment. They have their own radio station, WSM, that promotes country music and they start the Grand Ole Opry in 1925. And I can't give you an exact answer, but it seems like there's simply a more welcoming atmosphere and more people interested in promoting country music in Nashville than there are in Atlanta. Because in Atlanta, what the papers want people to notice is that Atlantans go to real high class. They would have been seen types of music, not that they're listened 
black and hillbillies perform music that doesn't really matter that much in their view. Right. So, so the goody two suit, goody two shoes are trying to to suppress the poor white music as well as the poor black music. I don't know that they're actively trying to uh, suppress it. They would probably would try to suppress black music. Although blacks appeared, Atlanta's first radio station opened in 1922, and early radio stations were hungry. They had a lot of live airtime, and they were hungry for any kind of act they could get. And African Americans did appear on the radio for a while, and a lot of whites liked black sacred music. Mm-hmm. And the like, but yeah, there was there would have been more contempt for black working class music. For white music, though, starting in 1913, there were annual fiddling conventions in Atlanta at the Municipal Auditorium, and that's another thing where papers promoted it as all social classes come to enjoy the same music. That even if you become wealthy in Atlanta, you remember your roots back in the country, <laughs> and also they right. they kind they kind of romanticize these people and use them these fiddlers and use them as a way to bring whites together who might have been separated by economic issues, for example. So there's kind of a kind of a patronizing affection for hillbilly music, but not to the extent that anybody pays attention that it's being recorded or that maybe we could become a recording center. Because this is very early in the recording history anyway. It's very early in radio history and I don't know. Atlanta just misses its opportunity for whatever reason. Right. <laughs> well, let's say it's, I don't know, 1990, excuse me, 1890 or, or 1900. And I'm one of those low-class Atlantans looking to, <laughs> uh, to to go see something really interesting. Is this is it advertised very openly? Do I just have to talk to a friend who knows a guy who knows a place to go to? Or Well, you're not necessarily going to go to a seedy place because you're working class. I didn't mean to say that. Well, no. <laughs> The theater, the main theaters are perfectly respectable and working class people, poorer people, if they can afford the ticket, can get in there. And a lot of them do. They're sick, kind of segregated by seating. More expensive tickets are for people sitting on the floor. The least expensive tickets are for people sitting in the gallery, the uppermost area. <laughs> Just and like Shakespeare. <laughs> yes. And the gallery is divided between white section and black section. But And then there's vaudeville is trying to catch on in the 1890s. That's a variety entertainment where just a really mixed bag of one act following another. You know, it could be a comedy skit and then a trained dog act and then a juggler and then a violin solo or something. That originates in urban New York and it takes it a while to catch on in Atlanta, but you might get to go to a vaudeville theater. But even the burlesque theaters, you can find ads for them in the newspapers. So it's not even though they're frowned upon and often the performers are dragged into court, it's not something that you would have to struggle to find. I <laughs> so, so, so they'll, they'll condemn it, but they'll sure, sure take the advertising dollars. Yeah. The papers will definitely take the advertising right. <laughs> <laughs> There are several of examples where performers are arrested. And at one point, the judge in the recorder's court in Atlanta, these people too, these exotic dancers have been brought up on charges. And in order to determine whether the dance is obscene or not, he has them replicate the dance there in front of the judge's bench. So the crowd clears and the people give the dance and the judge decided this is disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) He he finds the man in charge a hundred dollars. He doesn't find the women. Women were typically seen as more sad victims of the men who were exploiting them for these types of things. But that created a stir in the newspapers when you had a court case in which a dance was performed so the judge could look at it and decide whether it was obscene or not. Right. So tell me a little bit about the, the vaudeville scene 
in a, in Atlanta. I mean, you, you mentioned that that briefly, but that's just something that's always fascinated me. And vaudeville style entertainment, even the people don't recognize it, but it's still very much with us in, in, in a lot of different ways. And I've I'm just fascinated by that. So if you would just tell me a little bit about uh, how that went in Atlanta, how popular it was, if there were any famous acts that would come through that people could see or any homegrown acts. Well, th- there was a huge event in Atlanta history in 1895 that you're probably aware of. The, it's called the Piedmont Exposition or the Cotton States and Industrial Exhibition that was held in Piedmont Park. And it was this huge, several month long exposition, kind of a fair where you could go to find some amusements. But also there would be different buildings that were designed to show off to people who came to the exposition, all that the South had to offer economically in an attempt to persuade people to invest in Atlanta, invest in the South, you know, help build it up as it's still trying to do following the devastation of the Civil War. And so many people were pulled into Atlanta. They came to see the exposition that for a while, these new types of entertainment like vaudeville could prosper and several little vaudeville houses opened in Atlanta at the time of the 1895 Piedmont Exposition. And they did pretty well while the big crowds were here. But then once the crowds went away at the end of the exposition, the audience largely evaporated as well. And it's not until early 20th century, 1906, 1907, that era, vaudeville theaters began to establish themselves here successfully more long-term, there seems to be some kind of invisible line at which Atlanta transformed into a more urban location that was more receptive and able to host places like this and provide an audience for them. So again, it's vaudeville. We probably today call it variety entertainment. There used to be, when I was a kid, you know, all sorts of variety TV shows on Ed Sullivan and that sort of thing that had kind of a vaudeville format. One act after another, they could be wildly different, but, you know, they're very entertaining. They're less expensive. These vaudeville theaters are to go to than the main theaters are. And then vaudeville establishes itself in Atlanta. It's already been established in urban centers around the country, and it grows and grows and grows into the 1920s. And then, of course, it's ultimately done in by the movies. But In the 20s, especially when Atlanta has big vaudeville theaters, lots of famous people came through. The Marx Brothers, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to think of any off the top of my head, but main, often star, well-known performers crisscrossed the country by train, just like actors had in a previous generation. And so the big people did come through Atlanta. See, now we're going to delve into to an area that I'm kind of interested in just personally. So all of our listeners will have to come along with me. Um, <laughs> what effect, if any, on the history of, of entertainment in Atlanta? Was there a bump? Was there some sort of transition during and just after the Great War? What sort of effect did that have on it? Well, what I argue in my book and what seemed to me true from the newspapers that I reviewed, researched, and that was a different thing about researching newspapers when I was in graduate school. I had to go day by day on microfilm. That's right, you kids, uphill both ways. Yeah. (laughs) Today, I put in a digital search term and it would search the newspapers for me. But what I argued in the book, and it's not going to give a very satisfying answer to your question, is that by the 1920s, Atlanta was increasingly becoming, entertainment is becoming more centralized across the country. Atlanta is becoming less distinctive in the 1920s. So the same performers who perform elsewhere, the same movies that show elsewhere, they come through Atlanta and it has a vibrant entertainment, commercial entertainment scene, but there's nothing 
very distinctively local about it. Atlanta's mm-hmm. been sucked into this big national entertainment industry. And whereas if you look at the early days of Atlanta, you can see a lot of idiosyncratic performers and distinctive venues and that sort of thing, many of them homegrown. But by the 20s, there's not that much distinctive anymore. So any changes the Great War brought about would be the same changes that occurred across the country, not necessarily specific to to Atlanta. Yeah. I mean, there are specific things happening in Atlanta, specific censors looking at movies and that kind of thing. And I remember in the research, the Great War during the flu epidemic, there's, you know, discussions, do we close these theaters? Don't Mm -hmm. we close these theaters? But, and there's still the Metropolitan Opera coming through every year that's distinctive to Atlanta. But I'm not aware of any major changes that World War One brought along to the entertainment industry right. in Atlanta. Have any of my questions just missed the high point of what you're trying to get across with your research in your book? Uh, is there anything that needs to be said that we've left out? Well, <laughs> we haven't talked about movies much. They were really interested oh, yeah. in their origins. And of course, they become the most popular form of entertainment. One thing I mentioned that because it's always had a, I've had always had a soft spot in my heart for it is one interesting thing about researching through newspapers in those days was I went chronologically day after day, page after page of the newspaper. So you kind of followed stories chronologically. And about 1895 or so, stories began to appear about this local actor named Scott Thornton. And the papers made a big deal out of him in real grandiloquent language. And they referred to him as our Scott. And apparently Scott believed that, you know, he was just temporarily in Atlanta, that he was a man of genius and he would work his way up to the stage in New York City eventually. And he would put on occasionally shows in Atlanta. Atlanta theaters would have him put on a show, but almost invariably the shows would be broken up before they were over by people throwing things at Scott Thornton and throwing things onto the stage. This was kind of common in the theaters in the 19th century. And he'd be driven off the stage and the papers would write about, thus ended a great show. I always wondered as I went through this chronologically, is Scott Thornton in on the joke? Is he just going on stage and pretending to think he's a great actor (laughs) to earn the money that does come in from ticket sales? Or is he pretending to earn some money? Or does he really think he's a genius who's going to make it on the New York stage one day? And the papers kind of make fun of him and have fun of him and write about him in mock heroic language and all. Anyway, I think it's 1897. I stumble upon the page the paper in which Scott Thornton has died. Sounds like it might have been of tuberculosis. It becomes clear from the writing about him that Scott never understood why people threw bananas at him when he was on stage and never understood why the papers had such a fun time treating him lightly. He really did. He was a little bit unbalanced. (laughs) and He really did think that he uh, was going to go somewhere. And the papers and the theaters took advantage of that for fun. So it had a sad ending that I've been sad about ever since. I even went out to Oakland Cemetery because he's buried there. And naturally enough, he doesn't have a headstone. If he ever did, it's gone. Oh, no. I'm the only person in the world who knows anything about Scott Thornton. And that's one of the, I think it's one of the pleasures of being a historian is stumbling across things that they were ever known or long forgotten. So Scott is this poignant example to me of entertainment in late 19th century Atlanta. A lot of humor, some cruelty, some sadness, but he's always stuck in my mind. I don't think we could wrap things up any better than that. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, Steve Goodson, doctor at uh, West Georgia 
University, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing a little bit. The the entertainment in Atlanta, the the highbrow, the hillbillies and the hellfire and the, the seedy parts of town and judges getting private burlesque shows all in the name <laughs> of law and order. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. And this is this has been a lot of fun. We'll definitely have to have you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.